The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, I'm sure uh, many of you have been watching a lot of the news lately regarding uh, Queen Elizabeth. And it's been um, quite amazing not just to watch uh, her funeral, but to all the um, just specials and things that have come out about her. I, I don't know how much you are uh, involved in thinking about that. It's quite remarkable, though, her reign. And um, I'm, I really am looking forward to, I'm sure there'll be books that are written on her and, and uh, biographies that are written that'll be wonderful just coming out. But um, there's, I, I've even heard of so many stories <clears throat> regarding her and her humility as well as her regal character. Um, and how she would even remove uh, at certain parties that were dedicated to other people. She would remove her own crown and, and anything that would indicate her royalty in order to observe and exalt other people. She just was a, a really interesting and, and beautiful character. But some of the things that are just obvious, um, even if you're not super involved or been watching, is really uh, how remarkable how, the length and breadth of her reign in fact, the second longest British uh, sovereign and first longest monarch, um, her reign lasted 70 years and 214 days. That's pretty amazing. Um, she was actually, uh, um, her coronation was when she was 25 years old. And um, in 1953, when her father passed away while she was actually uh, overseas, in Kenya, doing work. And, and to think about that, I mean, to think about the length of her reign, that people have been talking about, we may never, never see a reign like that for, in our lifetime, um, because there are very few that have had that. There's only one that's been longer, and <clears throat> it was uh, by someone who took the throne when they were, uh, by crazy providence, uh, when they were in, uh, before 10 years old. But to think about where she was with that and the length of that, you know, we just read a passage that talks a lot about um, Jesus and his reign. How is he sovereign? 
Uh, we typically, and what we like to do in our church is actually to, to take a passage or take a book of the Bible and uh, unpack it over a length of time and really look into it. And this passage from Colossians, which is a letter that, that a guy named Paul wrote to a church, really unpacks about who Jesus is. They were struggling with a lot of somewhat unknown issues in this church. But what Paul does begin with, he may not begin with um, how they're feeling or how they're doing, what he begins with is who is Jesus and what is his reign? And you know what's amazing about Jesus and his reign, and if you picked it up in this, that's kind of, there's a lot of mystery packed into this passage that we're gonna try and unpack here and could unpack for weeks, but that his reign is still going. The, the, the beginning point is actually in some sense unknown, <laughs> and the ending point is unknown. He's still reigning currently right now. And what does that mean for us as Jesus holds the title of Lord and Savior in this, in his coronation, in who he is as the sovereign who holds both Lord and Savior of his people? And this is where Paul wants to go. He wants them to understand this. If we're going to have relationship with Jesus, if we're going to understand who he really is and what the church is really about, why do we actually have this even place we meet in and sing these songs and do these things, even Jesus, lover of my soul. What does that mean? We can't really understand it if we don't know his reign. If we don't know the character of the one who reigns as Lord and Savior. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this passage through two lenses. Uh, who is he as our Lord and who is he as our Savior? Simply put, Lord and Savior. Colossians 1.15 begins with a pretty startling thing to say. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, that word image, that Jesus is in the image of God, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the invisible God that we sometimes wish, man, don't you wish you could just see God? I mean, there's moments you're like, you just wish. he is the image of God. He is the physical tangibility of God himself, perfect in nature. And you might recognize that word image um, even from the beginning of the Bible when it talks about when man was made. It says in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it says, let us make man in our image. In other words, there's a picture of the Trinity that's us, this plural, let us make man, let Father, Son, Holy Spirit make man in our image. But there's a little different nuance here of image than there. Uh, if you're new to Nashville, uh, you may have noticed this building. It's, uh, if you've lived here for a while, you've, you've You've heard of it, you know about it. Uh, we have a replica of the Parthenon, just stones throw away from here, other side of Vanderbilt. And the reason we have that, it's literally an exact replica. I mean, you can see it, go into it, even the way that they have Athena in there and other artifacts, it's, it's to be an exact replica of it. Um, but the reason that we have it is, is Nashville is considered the Athens of the South and packed within the small confines long before even today uh, were easily high double digits of academic institutions within this uh, city. And so it became the Athens of the South, the place where all this education. So they decided to build an exact replica, architecture and all, of the Parthenon and put it right in Centennial which is kind of a strange, I'm sure you're a little bit like, especially if you're new to Nashville, you're like, what is that thing and why is it there? 
Uh, you should go see it. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. But here's the thing that, about it. It is a replica of the real thing. So it's not an exact imprint of it. So it's not, it may look like it, but it's not of the same sculptor and hands who actually make the original Parthenon. See, one of the things about what image means here, different than our image, is that this it means unspotted in Greek. It means that Jesus' image, different than our image that was marred by sin, is unspotted. It is a perfect, not replica, but image. He is God in that image. And what's even more magnificent, we're made in that, and yet what's been spotted by sin is our image. So it talks about what is Jesus in terms of that. The creator steps into creation. He steps into it. And here's, here's what should blow your mind in the mystery of it. That Jesus doesn't just say, he's not just the firstborn of all creation in terms of he is the agent of it, but he's the goal of creation. It could be easily read here when you read the firstborn of creation. That it might be, oh, well, he's the first one created. That's actually not what's being said here. It's, that's incorrect language. What it means is the firstborn was saying he is the heir. A firstborn in a family, there was a, a, a law in history. It was called the primogenitor. It was that the firstborn child would be the inheritor of all of the riches and wealth. So when Paul uses firstborn here, he's not saying that Jesus was the first created thing. He's saying that to Jesus, all of creation is his inheritance. And immediately after that, he says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, <clears throat> whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he's not just a, a created being. He's the heir of all this creation, and all of it is his. He has the rights and inheritance to it. it you see some of this in the Gospels. It's just profound, especially when Jesus is interacting with creation. <clears throat> his relationship to it, it's kind of fascinating because there are moments where Jesus is saying things that, you know, when we interact with creation, uh, I've told you stories about interacting with creation at my house. I'm sure you've dealt with this. Creation fights back. Like if we want to, you know, do work in the yard or if we want to see things done in our creation, it is a struggle and a fight. What we see when Jesus interacts with creation, it submits. So here's what's fascinating. In the Gospels, you see Jesus, and he'll be entering into a city, and people are praising his name. And the religious people are like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't. That is blasphemous. You only give that to the creator. Only Yahweh alone gets that language. And he says, okay, you can shut their mouths, but if you do, these stones lining this path are actually going to cry out and worship to me. Think about that for a second. What he knows is that creation does that. He's in a boat, and there's a couple, this happens a couple places in the Gospels, where a storm arises, and they're freaking out on the boat, and Jesus is asleep, and they wake him up and say, hey, don't you care that we're, we're going to drown? Do you care about us? Do you care at all? And he sits up, and he speaks to the storm, and the storm calms. And in fact, the language that's used about the calming of the storm is when an animal meets its alpha. 
It's almost like when you first get a dog and it recognizes you as you're the owner, you're the alpha, and it, when you come home, it's you're the one the dog goes to. In our family, uh, we have a, a joke that our dog loves us, but our dog loves Megan. Like, loves my wife. Like, we can come in the room, and you know, it's one of those things like, where is he going to go? He's, he'll go wag his tail and then right to her. And then basically, like, holds his paws up for her to pick him up. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Talk about submission. That's exactly what creation does when Jesus is on the scene. It, it is no joke to hear that it says all things were created through him and for him. They recognize him and submit to him. It's mind-blowing. And, and not only that, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it's not just the fact that they recognize and submit, but that by Jesus' power, everything is held together. Uh, I don't know about you, I get super geeked out and fascinated with uh, the things like the James Webb tel Telescope. Have you read about this? It's unbelievable. Some of the pictures they're sending back of planets and things that we've seen photos of before, but now they're incredibly clear and now you're seeing like rings around Neptune, like crazy things that we haven't seen before. And I remember when I was in school and we had this science class. And I, don't, I, I think I saw this like a couple years in a row. Such a cool video. They did this power of 10 uh, magnification and uh, zooming out. And so what they did was they started by so, like um, a, a person laying in a park, basically on a blanket. And they began by zooming out by 10. And they just kept going by 10. And every 10, you just see how much smaller things get, but how much bigger the universe is. And by the time you get out, and then the earth is this teeny tiny dot. I mean, just, and then they zoom back in and do it the other way, which is crazy. And they zoom down on this person on the blanket and they zoom into his hand and they keep going through his tissue into his cells, into the atoms. I mean, you begin to see all these things. And, and you, you, we don't think about this often, but when it talks about that Jesus in him, all things hold together, it means that there's not one thing out of place from his grip. It means that Jesus Christ himself is holding all of those things together. There's not something out of his purview, out of his, his, his sovereign. As the one who has actually in current reign, he has it in his hand. It's for him and through him. Fight, nothing about creation. Fight, it submits to him. He has it. And as much as we see the disharmony and disruption in it, creation cries out in this way. It's actually interesting. In Romans chapter 8, it says that, that creation groans. It speaks about God's care and redemption for it. It calls to him, and he's the one that speaks of it. It goes even from that, then before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's nothing outside of his grip. Then it, all of a sudden, there's a turn in verse 18, and he says, and where else is he Lord? And he is the head of the body, the church. So he moves from creation immediately to, okay, what about this? What about the church itself? Because he's writing to a church. 
And he's actually writing to a group of people who in their purview, they may have even seen creation as the highest of its being. But then they're like, now we're a church. What does this have to do with us? Well, he moves straight from not just creation, but he is the head of the body of the church. Uh, (laughs) I'm a pastor in a denomination, a Presbyterian denomination, and we have what's called a book of church order. If I handed it to you, you would probably fall asleep immediately, faster than you would normally. Uh, in this book, it has like all the rules and regulations of how like do to do worship. How do you do little meetings? You know, like we have so many meetings, committees, like this is the book, okay? It's a blue book. People look at it and they're like, Ugh. you know, it's one of those, right? But you know, when you open this book up and when they, they just drill us, when I had to become ordained, which means um, I had to go through a rigorous test, both orally and written, The first thing in this book, the first page, the preface of this book begins by saying things like, "It the church belongs to his majesty, meaning the Lord Jesus. From his throne of, this is the beginning of that book, from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church. That the beginning of every single meeting Every single thought of what the church is is not about me, and it is not about you. The head of the church is Jesus. And even if I was to stand up here and make it about me, I would be diverting us far off of what the church is about. If we make it about us, we're diverting far off of what the church is about. And this is what's amazing. When Jesus came and they were plotting to kill him, in the, in the Gospels, you can read about them trying to kill Jesus. How do we, if he says he's Lord and we think he's blaspheming, and so the religious leaders think he's blaspheming, and those who aren't religious leaders and they're like, man, he's taking all the political power away from us. That is a sovereign. We need to get rid of him. Somebody comes in and says, hey, if you cut off the head, the followers will fall away. But what happens if, as it says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He not only reigns over the church, but what if the leader is even greater than death itself? That means the church can wax, the church can struggle, it wanes, but it never dies because what is its head? It's Jesus. The church can struggle in its life. You see that. That's why these letters are written. They're written to churches that are in need. They're struggling with, what does it mean for us to have relationships? There's all sorts of very deep practical application in these. But it always begins with who is at the head. Even Paul himself constantly is pulling himself back. to say, I may have helped you plant this church, but this is not about me. The head is the Lord Jesus, because who is the one who not even death itself could hold and rises again to prove that you can put the leader of the church to death, but the church will never die, because even in death, resurrection is what the church is about. Again, this is actually why the church meets on Sundays, the first day of the week. I don't know if you've ever wondered that before. Maybe you're here and, and, and maybe you're kind of kicking the tires of, well, what is church? What, what does it mean to be a part of a church? The church meets on Sunday 
And it used to meet, they used to meet for worship on Saturdays, which was the end of the week, but they began meeting on Sundays because it was on a Sunday that Jesus resurrected. And the church said every week, we are going to meet on the day that our Savior resurrected in order for us to know what drives us out. It's not about our worship. It's about the one who, who's worthy to be worshiped. Who is the Lord and head of the church? It is him. So even at times when we can feel in despair or discouraged that maybe there is some discouragement or difficulty in the church, the church, as long as we continue to look back, who is the Lord and sovereign of it? It will never go astray off him. He is our head. But he's not only the Lord, he's the Savior. And and this is where verse 19 comes in right after. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Lord fully dwells in Jesus. The word dwell means tabernacle. It means something that we actually were going to celebrate in a few months at Christmas. We celebrate it in spades. We sing it. We talk about it at Christmas time. We love it. Where Jesus took on flesh, he was born, he came into this world. And this is where the Lord is pleased to dwell. The focus of it is, where does God dwell? The word tabernacle meant uh, there was an old tent before the temple was ever built in the Old Testament. When the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, they were called to build like this tent-like structure that was basically a mobile worship unit where they would carry it from place to place. It had skins, animal skins on it. It was beautiful tapestry, as much as they could do. And they would carry it. And when they would set it up in certain places, they would put in the very middle of it. It would have layers to the middle of it. In the very middle, it would have the Ark of the Covenant, a thing that maybe you've heard about, or maybe you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, but that, that thing was in the middle of it. That was where the Lord met with his people. And that was the place in tabernacle. And the Lord talked about him, how he wanted that tent to be in the midst of his people so that he could dwell, he could be with them. That's the same language. It's the same thing that we want to feel, that warm, cozy, intimate feeling at Christmas because we want to remember over and over that the Lord comes to tabernacle with us. But again, differently than our image and different than the tabernacle with us, it shows that where does the fullness of God dwell? Dwells in Christ. So that in Jesus, we're not just meeting like partial God and partial man. We're meeting 100% God and 100% man in Christ. And he's pleased to dwell. That word Pleased is enormous. And notice, it's a word that we even sing about at Christmas. Man, with man, it's, one, it's part of the, one of the songs that we sing. With man, he's pleased to dwell. You know, we like sing that over and over. But what it actually means here is that God was so incredibly pleased with his son Jesus. This is where he dwelt. C.S. Lewis said this about the incarnation, and I think it's really well put. He said this, in the incarnation, God the Son takes the body and the human soul of Jesus, and through that, the whole environment of nature and all the creaturely predicament into his own being. 
so that he came down from heaven, as he says, can almost be transposed into heaven drew earth up into it. And locality, limitations, sleep, sweat, foot sore, weariness, frustration, pain, doubt, and death are from before all worlds known by God from within. So that in the incarnation, it's not so much, and this is what Paul is getting at here. It's not so much that Jesus came down here, but within Jesus, where the fullness is to dwell, that we were brought up into him, that he is the Lord, and that he is God above. And that he's so pleased, and there are places in the, in the Gospels where, where God actually says, this is my son, my beloved son, listen to him. And that word beloved is similar to please. And what it means is that God so has the pleasure and love towards his son that that pleasure and love is actually the same pleasure and love he has towards us. That if we find ourselves, if we know we are in Jesus, that he is not only our Lord, just our Lord, but also our Savior together, that we know that we are in someone where God doesn't just look at us and go, oh, <clears throat> you're, that's great. I'm so glad you're, you're, you love Jesus. The same pleasure, the same deep, profound love he has where he fully dwells in his son is the same pleasure that he has towards you. And when it comes to thinking about Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior together, I think that is one place where we can really struggle. is to ask, God, are you, do you really not just love me, but do you like me? Like, are you pleased with me? What's massive about this is, is, is we put that on our feelings and we put it on the way that we think, oh, well, is God like me today? Have I done good things to stay in his pleasure? Because we've done that all our lives with our parents, with our bosses, with our friends. Do you know the measure of God's pleasure and love towards you is fixed in his son, Jesus? And if his son, Jesus, in all things hold together, if his grip is that strong and powerful towards creation, just think about how much his pleasure and love towards you is. That's a reign that doesn't quit. That's a... That's, that's a reign that doesn't extend for just 70 years and 214 days, but from eternity that even in this very moment where you may come in this room incredibly in despair, you may even not know if you have a relationship with Jesus. And if you, you look to him as Lord and Savior, not in the way of like just the old way that we thought, this is the Lord and Savior. If you look to him, you have that pleasure of him resting on you. Verse 20 says this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is sealed. As tangibly as I mentioned the box in the back of a room, so tangible is his blood upon you. Like we think in very material things, we think in very tangible ways. This is why the God of heaven and earth talks about, look, think about 
the amount of creation that is talked about here, the amount of physicality, because he wants you to know that you are loved physically, tangibly. The sins you see, the patterns you ask, why are they there? And they happen over and over. The ways that your brain thinks, even when you move into confession like this morning, and maybe you say the same thing every week because you don't know what else to say. His reconciliation is him saying, I'm coming to bring you back into relationship with him. This is where Romans 8 cries out. This is where the Romans 8, the Romans is another letter written to the people of Rome. Romans 8 says that creation groans. And it talks about wanting to be brought back. In fact, the groaning is this language that means it's almost like someone standing on their tippy toes and craning their neck, waiting the creation is groaning for redemption, and so is our body, the futility, the frustration that comes with all of that in heaven and earth. And notice, he doesn't just say earth, he says heaven and earth twice, actually three times, if you consider even the last verse of this. That not just earth, but heaven itself is looking to Jesus, its sovereign. Let's say, you haven't just saved. Jesus didn't just come and die on the cross to say, he's got you, you got, he's just got your soul. He's saving by his blood, the peace through the cross. By his blood, it's even mentioned that every drop of blood tangibly addresses every sin across this world. It's none wasted. There's nothing outside of it. Nothing can be lost in it. Creation is the witness to us about it. I don't know if you've, um, I'm not huge into this movie, but there's one coming out again, Avatar. I don't know if you remember this. It was actually a movie that came out years ago. It actually got a lot of publicity. Some of you may have loved that movie. It, it's coming out with the second one, so they're like, of course, trying to re-release. Let's re-release it and add everything and see how much more money we can get. And um, Avatar, right? So, but years ago, after the first one, there was an interesting article. Um, there were a number of them, but interesting article that was written by somebody in the New York Times about the trouble of what Avatar brought in. And there, were a lot, there was a lot of people that were talking about it. And this is, man, how many years ago was that? Uh, almost, gosh, 10, 15 years ago? And uh, people's longing. So Avatar even drew out in a lot of these articles, people's just longing for a heaven but trying to see creation as meeting it. And Ross Duthat wrote, the, wrote this in the New York Times years ago. This is what he said. He said, it, the harmonies require violence. Its circle of life, that is nature, is really a cycle of morality. And the human societies that hew closest to the natural order aren't the shining Edens of James Cameron's fond imaginings. They're places where existence tends to be nasty, brutish, and short. Religion exists in part precisely because humans aren't at home amid these cruel rhythms. We stand half inside the natural world and half outside of it. We're beasts with self-consciousness, predators with ethics, moral creatures who yearn for immortality. This is an agonizing position and there's no, if there's no escape upward or no God to take on flesh and come among us as the Christmas story has it, a deeply tragic one, 
Pantheism offers a different sort of solution, a downward exit and an abandonment of our tragic self-consciousness, but some sort of re-emerger with the natural world or half-ancestors. But except as dust and ashes, nature can't take us back. Incredibly intelligent words I, I, <laughs> to think about as much as where do we look to be taken back. In fact, the word reconciled actually in Greek means to be taken back. And the places that we go to look to be taken back over and over cannot pay for us in the way that we long for them to. This is why even he begins, he says, not only throughout creation, but he says, and you. I love that turn in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, brought back into his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If there is any word in this that draws out what it really means to be brought back is the fact that you and I are now considered blameless and above reproach because of who Jesus is. It means you can no longer look in the mirror and say, I blame you, over and over. It means you can't look at anyone else to tell you whether you're blameworthy. It means that the one who is spotless has removed the spots. It means the blame that you deserve has been brought out, has been touched, has been mined out by the blood of Jesus. It means that when we go to a table like this one, that you're tasting something so profound. I don't know if you have thought about it this way before, but every molecule of the tangible bread and juice and wine and crackers that you will take from this table are actually held together by Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, the body and blood that you're taking is of the Savior. The one who holds them together is the same one who lays down his life so that you may be blameless, blameless before God in Jesus through his blood. I, I, if there is anything that I think we struggle with in our culture, our society, is who is to blame? Who do we put blame on so that we can feel or experience or know that we are without it? Or can somebody hold more blame than us? And yet the difference in this sovereign, in the Lord Jesus, is that what he does in every blame that you've taken or are, it's not a feeling, it's not a, an emotion, it's the fact that you are now blameless because his tangible peace offering and reconciliation by his blood, you taste the blame has been taken on him. No other philosophy does this. This is actually what the Colossians were struggling with. Is there any other philosophy, any other religion, anything else that can touch that? Any other sovereign whose reign is like this one? No one but Jesus. 
No one is both Lord and Savior together and never taken apart. Who holds all of creation and yet holds you and you so that you are blameless before him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.